This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet. Learn more at bintotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month. A fun fact is that the quintessential Chinese takeaway, and I'm doing air quotes around Chinese, obviously you can't do that. It originally started as an oyster pail, that shape. That was the ultimate takeout food for a very long time in the U.S. Oysters were the biggest convenience food for a very long time before all the oyster reefs died. Uh, and so it wasn't until 1960s that they decided to, you know, add some some Chinese kitsch to it and market it as a Chinese takeaway container. Whether it's takeout, groceries, or even mail-in ballots this upcoming November, delivery has become essential in every sense of the word. This week, we take a deep dive into the people, processes, and historical timeline of food delivery. From Chinese takeout to the rise of the TV dinner, we'll hear how social change fueled the popularization of takeout. We'll speak with an essential worker to learn what it's really like on the ground floor. And we'll find out how some of New York City's restaurants are bringing innovation to their delivery systems. Lastly, we'll play you an episode of our new series, The Big Food Question, that seeks to answer the most urgent delivery issues facing restaurants today. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. First up this week, Emily Kunkel takes a look back at the historic roots of takeout and delivery. Takeout and delivery are anything but new. Archaeologists have found evidence of takeout going back all the way to ancient Rome and the Aztec civilizations. Since the late 1800s, the Dabawalas of Bombay and Mumbai have been delivering daily lunches to over 200,000 people by bicycle. In the U.S., the origins of takeout and delivery are a little harder to trace. In the United States... Uh, it's, it's obviously hard to pinpoint the first person who decided to do delivery or takeaway. But in 19th century hotels, they have advertisements that said, if you can send your servant to us, we will give you food and you can take that home with them. Obviously, not everyone in the world has servants, so that wasn't an option for everyone. But throughout the time, people also had options of sort of cracker boxes or takeaway boxes that people could just grab lunch or a light dinner from a restaurant and just just take it wherever they wanted to go. Emmalyn Rood is a food historian and founding editor of the Eaton Magazine, the food history magazine. In her Time Magazine article, What Takeout Food Can Teach You About American History, she pinpoints the first instance of delivery in the U.S. to Kinchu Cafe, a Chinese restaurant that advertised themselves as the only place on the West Coast making and delivering real Chinese food way back in 1922. Chinese restaurants, unfortunately, for most of their history in the United States, were considered sort of like a cheap eats option. I've read modern articles, basically, so Chinese immigrants will come to the United States and they'll open a Japanese restaurant just because they can sell the exact same ingredients for a higher price. People made that connection in some ways, and so it's sort of like a cheap eat that you can, you can pick up and easily 
And I don't want to say this is a Chinese only thing because that's impossible to say, but maybe these restaurants were just more entrepreneurial because they had to hustle more because they weren't the mainstream. So they found a way to innovate and make more money in a way that other fancier establishments just didn't have to. Throughout the next decade, innovation would become essential for any successful restaurant. At the center of this entrepreneurial spirit were takeout and delivery. With the suburban boom and the invention of the television, restaurants used takeout to adapt to families spending more time at home. By the mid-20th century, eating out was sort of a leisure activity. It wasn't, I mean, obviously, if you're a laborer and away from home, eating out is more of a necessity, but for the emerging middle classes, TV was how you'd spend your free time and relax, and it was in direct competition with eating out in a restaurant. So again, entrepreneurial restaurants who saw their bottom line hit that maybe if we can provide the food for the people who are staying at home watching TV, that we can make more money. And this was very much the case. In the early 1950s, some restaurants saw a sales increase of 20 to 50% uh, in a single year when they, when they started the takeaway menu. So again, another way for restaurants to make money. If we look at World War II, another time of immense social change, takeout and delivery would see another boom. As soldiers returned home, they brought with them a newfound love of Italian food. This penchant would ultimately give birth to the classic takeout pizza. It just reflects changing economic and social ideals. I mean, all food is about basically the history of money and the history of technological change. But takeout in particular, because it's so responsive to technological change, obviously you have the television, you have the cultural change of world wars you have moving on later you have the big economic change of the internet so it's just sort of how how we reimagine convenience in response to all these economic and technological and social changes with the economic and social challenges brought on by COVID-19 the food industry has reimagined delivery almost overnight to learn more about the history of takeout and delivery visit the link in today's episode description Next up, Tosh Kimmel talks with Jason Woody about being an essential food worker in New York City during the pandemic. In the last six months, the term essential worker has frequented the media as a way to refer to those providing a variety of essential services during the pandemic. These workers, despite imminent threat to their health and safety, have continued to support their communities. Jason Woody, a longtime bike carrier for the food delivery service Caviar, is one of those essential workers. It took me like a month to decide whether or not I was going to go out. I mean, people have contracted it just, you know, because we're going around doing deliveries and talking to people. So, um, you know, the risks are very real. The ability to shelter in place and even to social distance is a privilege that few recognize. And while there's a type of martyrdom that comes with being essential, it's worth examining the class divisions which separate a majority of essential workers from those benefiting from their work be it frontline nurses or those delivering food to your doorstep. It's funny to me now because as much as I've done this, I've done thousands of deliveries, and now it's at the point where I'll go ring a doorbell and watch somebody come outside and wipe down their door and their doorbell uh, after I leave. It's, it's kind of creepy, kind of weird, but that's this state of uh, where we are now. There's been just a lot more 
dropping things off at the doorman and ringing the doorbell and then people know that their food's outside. I'd feel better if I got paid like an essential worker. I mean, honestly, there's a real risk, especially in some of these larger buildings. Like there, there could be hundreds of people living in the same building and all it takes is like one infected person to like walk down the hallway. As a restaurant worker myself, I often wonder what it means to be essential and if others truly understand the risks which come with that title. At times, there's a dissonance between the way essential workers are spoken about and how they're treated on the job. Though Jason says there's been somewhat of an uptick in tipping, with multiple fast food chains, rideshare, and grocery delivery services striking this summer, it seems few essential workers are actually having their needs met. However, when faced with staying healthy or paying rent, many will choose the latter. It's mostly focused on the customer, because that's where they drive their revenue. Unfortunately, they have not increased pay rates or any of that cool stuff. I mean, there's definitely a hint of entitlement in some places, but it's it's weird because that's kind of like exactly what some of these services are for. There are those people that will order from the restaurant across the street, right? And it's hard to feel essential. <laughs> when like the whole job doesn't require using the bicycle. As more information has come out about the ways in which the working class have been more deeply affected by COVID, it's important that we analyze how companies and consumers alike can better support those on the front lines. Although the threat of COVID can often seem intangible, for those going to work every day, the dangers are always present. In the next story, Bryce Bayaki brings us an excerpt from episode 39 of HRN's opening soon. The show's hosts, Jenny Goodman and Alex McCreary, spoke to restaurant owners to see how they plan to pivot during the pandemic. When the first wave of COVID-19 struck New York City in March, restaurants were mandated to shut down. Now, some may never reopen. According to Eater New York, over 20 restaurants have permanently closed their doors. To mitigate the financial losses from the pandemic and the commissions of 20 to 40% from third-party delivery apps, some owners are implementing in-house delivery systems. Brandon Hoy, co-founder and COO of Roberta's Pizza in Brooklyn and Manhattan, has employed his own drivers while also making use of third-party delivery apps. I'm at a mix. You know, I would say um, 95% of all of the like hot food items I'm doing third party. Um, and I took my in-house delivery and moved them strictly to grocery. Um, our grocery program is, is, is still pretty small and really like we can only because of the, the amount of delivery, um, drivers we have, we can only do so much of it. So a lot of people are still very scared and don't want to be out on the front lines like that. So it's really hard to find, you know, people, one who, who like want to go out and do it and feel comfortable doing it. We don't really want to be putting people out there that aren't feeling comfortable with the, the situation that they have in front of them. When pivoting to his current delivery model, Hoy took a few things into consideration, like how he can make the most of his limited manpower while keeping the pizza shop open. So he introduced a grocery service and meal kits. 
customers can buy groceries delivered by in-house drivers, while most of the pasta and pizza kits are delivered by a third party. He recently began selling do-it-yourself cocktail kits as part of his appearance on Stir Crazy on Instagram's IGTV. His ultimate goal, to absorb as little debt as possible and to break even, especially with the future of the pandemic being so uncertain. We applied like a lot of other people for the PPP loan. And, um, you know, one of the stipulations to that loan is bringing back that 75% of your payroll, right? Which, which is a little bit more difficult than one might think. It's really nice to like bring those people back, but it's like, do they want to come back? You know, a lot of them are just like, they feel safer at home. And a lot of them, a lot of people out there that don't want to come back. When the third party drivers aren't delivering, Hoy sends his drivers out to certain buildings in Brooklyn and Manhattan. Because he is short on drivers, they only deliver to Brooklyn two days a week and Manhattan on the other three weekdays. I don't also want to be sending out an unnecessary amount of people like around. So we're trying to consolidate these things to much less like contact points. We reached out to a bunch of building management companies and said, hey, this is a program that we're offering. And we gave them building codes. So the way our grocery delivery works is like there's like 45 buildings um, between Brooklyn and Manhattan that, that have access to a site that we built and they can like go on and order with it with their code. And that also like limits the amount of places that we have to go. So like, you know, we have, we do, we do Brooklyn on Thursday, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And it's like, we only have to do like seven deliveries, but it'll be for 40 different people. So it makes it a little, a little easier for us to handle rather than if we had to do 40 deliveries in a day to 40 different people, like we wouldn't have the capacity to actually do it. To hear the rest of the interview with Hoy and to learn more about delivery services in New York City from Jenny Goodman and Alex McCrary, listen to episode 39 of Opening Soon, P is for Pivot, on HRN's website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. After the break, we'll zoom out from Roberta's to understand how other restaurants can streamline their operations and save money on delivery fees. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency Tart Cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com. This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet, founded by Ben Simon. After working for President Obama, Ben spent five years traveling the world for Greenpeace, campaigning on climate change and sustainable agriculture. He always kept his eye out for delicious food to bring back home. Now, with everyone's travels on hold and home cooking more important than ever, Ben's subscriptions provide a way for home cooks to experience different food cultures each month and put together nourishing, delicious meals with the best pantry items on the planet. With Taste the World, get a new shipment of different best-in-class ingredients to explore a new cuisine each month, along with tips and tricks to help out. We're talking delicious, single-origin spices, 
cold pressed olive oil, beautiful sauces, and lots of ways to use them. There's also an essential subscription which gets you a delicious assortment of heirloom, hard to find recipe staples. You can also get both each month with the full Ben to Table box subscription. Learn more at bentotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month and Ben to Table will donate $10 to HRN. Welcome back to Meet and Three. For our final story, we're sharing an episode from HRN's new series, The Big Food Question, that shares strategies for restaurants that want to make delivery work better for them. Here's Katie Mosman-Wadler. Welcome to The Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network. Today we're asking, how can restaurants save money on delivery? Hi, my name is David Rev Ciencio. Most people know me as Rev. I'm the Head of Revenue Marketing for Branded Strategic Hospitality. Rev is known as a marketing guru for the restaurant industry. So I've been in the marketing business my entire life. I used to be in the music business, and one day I decided that I didn't really want to work in music anymore, and I wanted to get in the hospitality business, and also you couldn't download a hamburger. Uh, and after being a serial agency owner, I bought a bar uh, and learned a lot about local marketing and hospitality marketing. And what I really learned is I'm very, very bad at operations and very, very good at branding and local marketing, and sort of relaunched my career doing all levels of hospitality, marketing, and sales. Stay-at-home orders have made delivery one of the best options for consumers to enjoy meals from their favorite restaurants. For a long time, there's been a conversation about the high rates that third-party ordering apps charge restaurants. With the added financial stresses caused by COVID-19 and rapidly dwindling revenue for operators, this issue has been brought to the forefront. So most restaurants in New York City, from a delivery standpoint, are using Seamless or Grubhub, depending on what you want to call it. It's the same company. They have the lion's share of delivery here in New York City, and, and they're really where most people are doing their business. Uh, but, you know, some people are using Uber Eats, some are using Postmates, some are using Caviar, some are using Delivery.com. So in a, in a pre-COVID universe, the commissions from these third-party delivery service providers were really high. And you were seeing oftentimes they were as high as 30%, right? But for every dollar that customer spends on the order, 30% goes to the delivery service provider. And that also didn't include the tip, that didn't include a service fee, that didn't include all these other things, it was just 30%. So if you're an operator and you're already, you know, you're operating at like a 10 or 20% margin, which is pretty standard for the hospitality business, to give up 30%, well, you know, you actually had to pay to acquire that customer. You actually had to pay to do business, right? And so that's like a really bad place to be over time. Those tight margins are swiftly shrinking as fewer people are dining out. Now, in a COVID universe or, or during a pandemic, there's a number of regulations, especially in New York City, that have gone around from, you know, from the government where those companies now are capped. Right, So if they're delivering the food for you, if they are handling the last mile piece, meaning they're sending somebody to pick up the bag and take it to the consumer, uh, they're capped at 15%. While the cap on how much delivery services can charge is helpful, it's only temporary and there is a larger issue at play. It might very well be the case that during this pandemic, delivery apps are the only places where customers are interacting with a restaurant. 
And so when somebody's hungry again and they open up Seamless or DoorDash, they're not really incentivized to come back to my restaurant. They're just incentivized to use that third-party delivery service provider. And that third-party delivery service provider, they don't care who the person orders from. They don't care if it's your restaurant, your competitor's restaurant, a grocery store. They just want the order. Right, and so that's why they don't give away the consumer's data, their their email address, their phone number, their name, because they want to own the journey, and they it's actually really their customer. That's why Rev sees shifting away from third party delivery services to a first party model. This would allow restaurants to have a more direct relationship with their customers. For a restaurant tour to be able to have that information, so if they're taking the order themselves through a first party, they now have the contact information for that customer. And not only can they remarket to them, right? So what if they open a new store or they're launching catering or they have a new menu, they can then email or text or, or whatever, send Facebook advertising out to people who have transacted to them before so they have that ability. But it drives a, a, a bigger lifetime value. Value, right? So if I've acquired you as a customer and now I can remarket to you to order again or do something else with me, I can now get a 360 view of your purchases because you're transacting with me. And the last reason you would do that is a branded experience. You know, most restaurants, whether you're just a, a bagel counter or you're a fine dining French brasserie, most restaurants spend a painstaking amount of money, time, and effort in making sure that the experience when you walk through the door has some level of branding. What is the look and feel of the place? How do you get treated? How do the employees dress? How do they greet you? What's on the wine list? What's on the menu? How they curate their food? When you walk through their door, you have this very curated brand experience of what you want people to have when they experience your brand. Well, when that food is coming to me in a bag that says seamless on it, you have no control of the branded experience. It's just, at that point, it might as well be seamless as hamburger. By creating a boundary between a restaurant and their customer, food becomes less personal. The art of hospitality disappears from the interaction and food becomes a commodity. And so having somebody order through your own delivery system, your own first party system, you can deliver them a branded experience. And you can make that delivery system consistent with your logo and your colors and your voice and your theme and your experience. Really, it's just a better way all around. Many restaurant owners are short on time, money, and staff right now. So Rev has a few suggestions on how to begin making the transition. First of all, they need to be able to ingest an order. Somebody needs to be able to place it, and they need to have it on their website. Now, most uh, restaurants operate on a, a POS system, right, a point-of-sale system. And most modern point-of-sale systems actually have some sort of online ordering. Like, it allows you to take an online order, but the systems aren't too robust. So if you really want to give a branded experience to your customers, uh, you want to trigger upsells, you want to calculate lifetime value, you want to be able to email and remarket to them, most of those don't have those types of bells and whistles. They're kind of like, oh, you want to take online orders? Here you go right? You can take online orders and they're great. They work. There is a better or maybe not better, a bigger solution that restaurants can go for called a digital ordering suite. There's hundreds of these things uh, that give you a more robust solution so you can have a more branded experience where you can upload your photos and your colors and your experience and, and have an AI database. These databases allow restaurants to market directly to existing customers and build a relationship. If building a digital ordering suite and in-house delivery service isn't feasible for your business, there are other options. I get asked this all the time. It's like, well, you know, Rev, I, I don't have the uh, finances to hire delivery people, or I don't want the insurance nightmare of delivery people, or I just don't want the headache of delivery people, or, you know, I don't want strangers in my building because of COVID. Like, I get that. I totally get that. That's why you have to go look for a company like Relay. 
or DoorDash has a product called DoorDash Drive, and these are called last mile delivery solutions. And so what they do is you're basically ad hoc hiring delivery people. And in New York City, Relay is actually a really popular way to do it. Essentially what happens is somebody goes to your website, they place an order through your online ordering system. That system through your POS pings Relay or DoorDash Drive, and they just send a driver. That driver picks up and delivers it. Last mile delivery services allow restaurants to control the customer's experience, but will take care of delivery. Another option for restaurants who've already invested in third-party apps is to train your customers away from them. If you can convert them from third-party to first-party, I absolutely advocate for turning on as much third-party as you can tolerate if you can convert them. Rev says that something like 7 out of every 10 customers would prefer to order directly from restaurants. However, this impulse to support small businesses is often obscured by the enticements of convenience. So it's all about making that transition as easy as possible. How do you convert them? Now, I teach a course on this. It's a four-week boot camp, and you can go watch the webinar I put up a couple weeks ago and get kind of a a top-level of idea. But there's a number of things you have to do. First of all, you have to have online ordering. You have to have online ordering, and it has to be easy to use. Why do people use DoorDash and and Seamless over and over? Because they can pick up that app, and with only using their thumb in like three clicks, pizza's on its way. It's super easy. So you got to have online ordering. And then as you're getting third-party orders, this is a big one. When you get that order from DoorDash, you get that order from Seamless, you get that order from Postmates, staple a card right on the bag. Hey, thanks for ordering from our restaurant. We totally appreciate it. Please order next time through our ordering suite. And then you can put a QR code or you can put a link to your website. And you put that on every single bag from every single third-party delivery service provider you get, right? Ride shotgun on their car. They, they spend all the money to get there. Just tag on as a passenger. Offering discounts on upcoming orders is another useful tool. But there's something much more important than $10 off. On your website, you got to make that order button super easy to find and super transactionable. If I have to go to your website, then click a menu page, then click an order button, then select the location, I've already done four or five clicks and I haven't even added a taco to my cart yet. Like, Remove all that friction. Just go right to the online ordering. And you also have to make sure that on your social media, in all of your social media, first of all, this is a rule, we do not mention third party. Okay, repeat after me. We do not mention third party. You say, please order from our online ordering link in bio. Or if it's Facebook, you put the link right there. Regardless of where a restaurant is on this spectrum of first party, third party, or last mile delivery, operators need to be thinking about how new customers will find them. Most people, right? So I think the number is 67% of people, when they go to search on, on Google for food, do not use the brand name. They do not say, I'm searching for Johnny's Tacos. They say tacos near me or lunch near me or you know quinoa bowl near me. But how do you then attract a customer when that happens? Okay, You have to manage your information on Google, Yelp, Bing, Yahoo, Foursquare, Facebook, all those places where people go to discover TripAdvisor. And the most important part of that is managing your menu. That way, Google or Facebook or Yelp or Bing knows that whatever that item is, that it's on your menu. They know you have chicken wings or they know you have an SIE bowl. And and then the last piece of that super important is each one of those services allows you to put in, there's a field where you can put your menu link or an ordering link. Put a link to your ordering page. Don't put it to your website. Don't put it to a PDF page. 
Don't put it to a menu page that's a display page without that's not transactional. Put it right to the menu ordering page so that I'm like, oh, you know, I searched best wings near me. This place came up. It had a high rating. The pictures look awesome. I'm in. How do I order? Boom. Rev has a lot of advice to offer, and in keeping with the times, he's offering it all through a series of webinars. The third to first party conversion bootcamp is a four-week course that happens live online. When this one's over, I will run another. This is my first one, and I kind of said if it goes well, we'll do it again, and it's going swimmingly. A free webinar is available to view online, and Rev's bootcamp will pick back up again in the fall. To get in touch with Rev and keep up with upcoming events and additional resources, look for links to his website and social media in the show notes. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to The Big Food Question for more answers about a food industry in crisis. Special thanks this week to Emily Kunkel, Tosh Kimmel, and Bryce Bayaki. Meat in 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hello, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>